This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Boomers, and welcome to another edition of Warp 5. My name is Will Wynn, one of the co-hosts of Warp 5, but tonight I'll be taking the seat in the center chair and hosting because our illustrious co-host Norman Lau is off for some much-needed shore leave. In actuality, he's actually going through some renovations for his house, so he couldn't record this week. So I'm going to take over the captain's chair, make sure it's uh, safe and warm until Norm gets back. But to help me keep the Annex 1 flying in working order tonight, I'm joined by a friend of the show and Trexpert extraordinaire, Jeff Harlan. Thanks for coming on tonight, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And returning to Annex 1 is longtime friend of Trek FM and executive producer and creator of the Enterprise fan film Star Trek Horizon, Mr. Tommy Kraft. Glad to have you back here with us, Tommy. It is agreeable to see you. Ah, very Vulcan, very logical. Why, thank view. you. So I'm actually very excited about tonight's episode because we'll be revisiting uh, a topic that we've actually talked about on a previous Warp 5 um, with actually Tommy and Chris Jones in the past. It was episode 42 of Warp 5, and we'll be focusing on Degra tonight. And I think Degra is such a fascinating character because in my mind, Degra saved the Zindi arc in terms of my estimation of the overall quality of season three. I think Tommy knows I wasn't the biggest fan of season three when I first watched it, but now that I've seen it again, I've actually become a huge fan of it. And I think because I watched it in back-to-back succession, I think the season three arc really works well when it's taken in one long story as it's meant to be told, as it's meant to be seen. But at the same time, I also focused more on on the characters that were there this time and i think degra is the key i think his arc his redemption as a character really sells the entire arc for me so we're going to delve right into that um tonight so just as a background for our listeners degra was actually featured in 10 episodes of star trek enterprise so he was featured in uh the zindi in Ryzen, the shipment proving ground Stratagem, Azadi Prime, Damage, The Forgotten, E-Squared, and The Council. And it's very interesting to note what the genesis of the character was. So conceptually, according to Memory Alpha, 
the initial inspiration for the character was based off of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was one of the key architects behind the atom bomb, the Manhattan Project. And to quote Brandon Braga, um, he said, we knew we wanted to create an Oppenheimer-like character who was a mastermind behind building the bomb, who was very committed to his species, but racked with guilt, just like Oppenheimer. We always knew we wanted to do it. And observing another facet that Degra shared with Oppenheimer, Braga noted, he killed millions of people. So I think it's really interesting that the Zindi arc, on the one hand, was kind of they were writing it as they were going, right? They were kind of making it up as they were going. But at the same time, they still had this long-term direction that they wanted to take with the specific character. And he was also a family man as well, which we'll, we'll get into in, in um, the discussion. But that's going to play a big role in his redemption. So I'm just going to open it up to you guys. Is What do you think of Degra's character background here, the the genesis of the, the writing of the character, and do you think how they set him up as a type of Oppenheimer-type character in space, do you think it was essential? Well, I think he was well-written, of course, but the the heart of the character, I think, in this case, goes not necessarily to the writing, but to the wonderful portrayal by Randy Oglesby, because, as you said, when they started, they didn't really know too much where they were going they had the general idea but when knowing how the season ends when you go back and watch it again I feel like you can really see even from the very first appearance of Degra that he's not snidely whiplash you know he's not twirling his mustache he doesn't seem to be reveling in this plan the way the others do and that could only have been just a really, really good character choice by the actor. Because in many times, especially in TV, you don't, as even if the writers know, the actor doesn't know where it's going. And so he has to kind of make a, he or she has to make a choice. And in this case, Randy Oglesby made a great choice. And it's what really gives Degra some depth from the beginning of the show. Jeff? Yeah, one thing that uh, really struck me about uh, Degra's character was that he wasn't one note, um, he always had something that was just a little bit more uh, to him than just being the scientist that was working for the villain. And I thought that was uh, much more interesting to watch uh, uh, the way that they portrayed him on the show. Um, It gave uh, someone that you could actually sympathize with on the other side. So uh, when the arc finally did resolve, uh, it wasn't... uh, you know, just the bad guys and we beat the bad guys. It was, it was more that there was, uh, you know, we came to an understanding and we helped them realize that they had been deceived and that they were making a mistake and that we came together in the end. And then we fought a common bad guy. No, both of you bring up excellent points because it's exactly how I felt. I think, um, I, do any of you own the season four Blu-rays? I have all the Blu-rays. Okay. Um, so you've seen the special features where they interview Randy Ogles before, mm-hmm. and it's it's really great because he provides really great perspective into his character. He said that, you know, when they were they brought him in, they wanted him to be a recurring character. And he actually knew the actor who played uh, Dolem. I'm forgetting the, the actual actor's name, but he knew him from Broadway. And they had a really good rapport and this good relationship. And how that arc ended up ending obviously with with um spoiler alert degra being killed by dolem that interplay i think randy really 
focused in on their relationship, him understanding him as an actor and kind of playing off that nuance. And I thought it was fantastic because Dolem has a lot of makeup on. He's a reptilian, right? And that's his actual voice. That's his actual, that's not a synthesized voice, which I learned for the first time from those um, special features. But the fact that he could emote so well, that such animosity through that makeup with Randy, I think it was such an effective foil. So that's a really good point about, I, I think, the, the quality of the actor because it adds a level of nuance. It, even when he's initially introduced, he is not completely 100% irredeemable. Clearly, he's a villain. We're supposed to root against him initially. But you could see something that you can sympathize with. The audience sees something that they can sympathize with. And I think what's also important about the this character is is the overall arc of, of, of the Zindi storyline in season three, right? It was it was very much representative of the post 9-11 lead up to the Iraq war or the Iraq war, or they say, right? So a lot of fans like that serialization, but other fans kind of derided as being quote unquote 24 in space, right? Torture, issues of ethics and war and high stakes, ticking time bomb, literally a ticking time bomb, right? Some people liked that. It, it, some people liked the jolt it gave. Other people kind of felt it was derivative. Um, I'm going to hold off on on my ultimate thoughts on that are, but what are your guys' thoughts on how Degra fit in into this kind of overarching, incredibly serialized season long arc? I think he saved it really, and and not and not that it needed saving, but he provided a much needed anchor to what otherwise could have been a much more typical bad guys are gunning for Earth and our crew has to stop them storyline and it was it was written that way but randy also played it as if i'm on a first name basis with him um he also played it that way yeah yeah we all are (laughs) uh he played he played that so well he you need that with any of this kind of arc and to people i think who didn't like the serialization aspect i think you always have to try something different creatively and uh, otherwise, you just wind up doing the same thing for, for 20 years, which they did. And I think is what ultimately led to, to Enterprise's, in some cases, uh, downfall. So I think Degra was probably one of the best parts of that arc. Jeff? Yeah, I I definitely agree. Uh, without him, a lot of the other villains uh, in, on the Zindi side were just really one note. And he brought a lot of depth to the Zindi that we otherwise wouldn't have gotten, and we got to see them as more than just an adversary. We got to we got a lot more of uh, what they were like as a people, and we got to see just a little bit behind the the curtain, as it were, uh, and understand them. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about Star Trek is that you can see more about uh, uh, these alien races and that also opens up to let us examine a little bit about ourselves and what's going on in our world around us and like we said with the uh, the parallels with Iraq at this time and, and I missed the initial run of these shows when they were on the air because I was in Iraq at the time oh and, were you yes and uh, Air Force right yes and uh, and so I mean most of these episodes aired while I was you know, out of the country. And, uh, um, so I, I didn't get to see him the first time around until they came out on video or uh, when they were in reruns. Um, and 
so I never really got the impact of this, this arc until later. And then I went back and I watched it and it really struck me that it's, it's giving us a villain that we can sympathize with at the same time as we really oppose them. And I kind of felt the same way when I was over in Iraq. I mean, you know, we have this, um, an opponent that we're uh, fighting against, uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of just normal people that are just really good people. Wow, that's a really good insight. And I think that's why I really love having veterans or people that are individuals who serve in the armed forces kind of adding their perspective because that's really on point because that's so true in terms of of humanizing the conflict, right? That doesn't mean that what you're fighting for or the overall issues aren't still relevant or still important, but there's a humanizing aspect. I think there's a, a leveling of, of, of understanding of, of the enemy, right? And I think, or, or quote unquote, the enemy, of who you perceive to be the enemy. And I think that's as relevant now as it was 10 years ago when this was um, first aired. And I think it's something that will continue to be relevant as as we go into the 21st century, as we deal with these types of issues of conflict and, um, for lack of a better term, like clash of civilizations or, or, or misunderstandings or age-old grievances that are being aired out. And supposedly conflict is the only possible tool of resolution, right? And I think in, in using that perspective, Jeff, I think that's actually... I've never looked at the Zinni arc that way, but I think it, it adds more points in my book because it is more of um, a subversive look at how we look at us versus them. Because that was very much a time mm-hmm. period of you're either with us, or you're against us. Yeah. You know, lockstep against terrorism or lockstep against an amorphous enemy that will show us no quarter. Therefore, we have to show them no quarter, right? To show them, to show Degra as a person that you can sympathize with despite him actually being responsible for the death of millions of people, I think is incredibly subversive in a good way because it subverts our conventional wisdom, our conventional insight of what the enemy should be and how we should view the enemy. And that actually brings uh, up the next point actually is, is the threat, right? The threat that, that Degra is, is dealing with and the Zindi overall are dealing with the threat that they believe that the guardians who, are known as the sphere builders to Archer and the crew, are going, uh, they have told them that Earth will pose a threat in the future and that they need to deal with them now. And because of that threat, they need to do a preemptive strike, right? Preemptive strike, unilateral action to ensure their survival. Therefore, if it's down to an issue of my children or your children, it's going to be your children, not my children, right? So I'm going to ask the question to both of you actually is, how do you think the overall threat is portrayed here? Do you think Degra's plan to build the super weapon and the probe is too complicated with too many moving pieces? And would you have done the same thing in his shoes, saying, uh, which is essentially saying, you know, if they're going to destroy us, we'll have to destroy them mentality. And it's, you know, unfortunately, if it comes to that type of decision, I'm going to make that really terrible choice. So do you like how the threat was formulated? I think it was actually formulated really well especially with the way it was paid off. And I think the thing with the sphere builders is exactly what it needed to take it to from just your typical alien threat to something more interesting. And it added a, a whole extra layer on top of this of a pseudo-religious indoctrination. 
And you even have the separation between the people, I guess you'd say are religious moderates, which would be Degra, who just believe the, the sphere builders are there to help them, but they don't necessarily take it to an extreme. Where And then you have the, uh, I forget what they're called, but the people who took over the Enterprise. Oh, yes, I forget too, but the, that religious tribe, right? Right, yeah, they basically destroyed their whole planet over the sphere builders. And we do see, of course, very much the same thing on, on our own planet in our own times. And I think I mentioned this before, but there's this really great bit I love where Archer tells Degra, it's when uh, he has him strung up and Dalem has been interrogating him. And Archer says that what the Sphere Builders have told him has been a lie. And Degra says, that is not a lie. And just something about his delivery is so perfectly formulated because you can tell that he's struggling between facts and what he's been indoctrinated and led to believe his whole life. That the Sphere Builders are good and always have the Zindi's best interests at heart. And so I think... I think that that is what took this arc and made it something special. And it also just from a cinematic storytelling standpoint, it gives the crew something else to do. It gives you a new threat to focus on. It's, I think it's very much a lot like in the dark Knight with the Joker, where you get halfway through the movie, you get an hour and a half in where a normal movie would end. They capture the Joker. You find out Gordon is still alive. Uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it it's been out forever but um and then the movie just goes absolutely crazy from that point you know everybody starts dying joker gets out and it's that kind of thing where you get to a point where yeah it could just be this and it could just end and it'd be okay but then it gets it adds so much more on top of that and i think the sphere builders is what really did that for that season and the way it was built as this big mystery throughout i think was also very fascinating it's a really good point jeff yeah, I thought it was a little overly complicated with the first attack on Earth that tipped off Earth that, hey, we're coming for you and we're going to come back with an even bigger weapon. I and mean, that just seemed like really bad strategy to me. But, I mean, we had to find some way to, to get the crew tipped off that something was coming. Um, I mean, my personal headcanon was that the reptilians kind of uh, went off half-cocked and stole it and took off with the thing and made an attack before they were ready. Um, but uh, Sounds totally reasonable to me because it does I, have actually. A, I, I have actually the exact same critique as well. And I think for yeah. me, it took me a long time to get over the fact that, you know, if they didn't do that, they would have no idea this was coming, right? They were, yeah. you know, they had no idea. And, they, and it was further exacerbated down the road when they had an entire episode called Proving Ground where they had a moon... Yeah. That was target practice for this larger weapon, right? I'm like, they couldn't have done that mm-hmm. with the probe. Though, to be fair, just like, that's the counterpoint to that. They did have some kind of clue because the future guy did contact Archer before the attack, mm-hmm. or at least before Archer knew about the attack, to warn him about what was going on. Right, right. So I think that's... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say that, actually. You're going to say, Jeff, sorry, go. Oh, I was, I was just going to make a comment about that uh, as well, um, that they were getting help from both future guy and from Daniels at this point. So, you know, clearly if both of them are helping the enterprise crew, then something is uh, pretty, uh, pretty bad is going on. Um, I mean, I narratively, I think they might've been able to find another way to, uh, to bring the threat to the crew's attention, but that was also more dramatic. 
So it, they just didn't really explain that too well for my my tastes, uh, why they had this initial attack that made no sense. But other than that, I mean the the you know the the rationale behind the the threat, uh, you know why they're attacking Earth uh, made sense because for generations the guardians as they knew them had been taking care of them and uh, helping them out. And now these people that they have come to trust over hundreds, if not thousands of years are saying this species over here in the near future is going to come and destroy your new home world that you're going to have. And they're going to wipe you guys out. So you need to kill them before they kill you. And they would have no reason not to trust them at this point. Uh, everything leading up to that they would just take them at their word and that made complete sense to me and the response from the humans is like we got somebody that's coming to wipe us out we need to take care of this threat and we don't have a whole lot of options and so then that conflict also made sense yeah so i think i think this is one of those classic examples of you know they kind of box themselves in and they were able to write themselves out of it but you could clearly see the strictures of the box, right? The box is, we got to shake things up and we got to attack Earth, right? And like, all right, we'll figure everything else out after that, right? And that's the thing that gets me about this indie arc is when I first watched it, like, what is going on? So the temporal Cold War is somehow tied into this. There's Future Guy, there's Daniels. Who are these fear builders, sphere builders? You're just like, there's so much going on initially, right? How it's all set up. And then as the season goes on, you kind of forget that there's a temporal Cold War component to it. And I don't want to get into the TCW component because that's an entire new episode, but that's that's crazy how there's even another layer on top of that, right? So the Sphere Builders are themselves a faction in this temporal Cold War. And it, although it's never really explicitly mentioned, and obviously how the Zindi arc ends with the Nazgul, I mean, it, it, it gets kind of crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But at the heart of it, I think, is a point that you guys had brought up Tommy in particular, which I think um, is of note is there's that religious aspect. There's this there's this crisis of, of, of conscience or crisis of belief. There's this existential divide that happens. Right. And it's not really hit on super explicitly, but it's there. And I maybe I wish it kind of was more explicitly kind of hammered out as religious moderates versus more orthodox um, believers but it's very it, that's exactly true right they revere the guardians as their protectors and almost like this supernatural um benefactor right and then you had degra who was a scientist right and they never play that up but it's there right so he i've led to believe that perhaps degra never fully believed in the guardians as you know completely infallible and maybe in the same way that you know to tie it in deep space nine was you know did were there Bajorans that never fully believe the prophets were prophets, but rather they were wormhole aliens, right? So was Degra always viewed these aliens? Obviously, they're from the future. They know something. They they deserve to be listened to. But did he really believe them to be infallible like gods? And it's never explicitly mentioned that Dolem or the reptilians viewed them as divine beings. But there was such a level of deference there, which I think they could have made that point the analogy much clearer, which would have obviously tied into kind of the larger issues at the time of religious fundamentalism, extremism, different ideologies. Can you reconcile all of those factors? I think Degra is a very intellectually honest person, if you were a real person. There's 
I remember from when I was religious back in the day, I would have, I had a, remember one conversation I had with a very religious friend of mine. And I said that I don't, I, I believe in God, but we could never truly know the, you know, the argument, you can never prove anything a hundred percent. And he said, oh yeah, I know hundred percent. You have to know, you just do. And I think that that 1% difference is what, from 99% sure to 100% sure, is what makes the difference between an intellectually honest person and someone who isn't. And that's the impression I get from Degra, where he's he's going to fight very hard for everything he's been taught to believe, but there's always going to be that side of him that gnaws at him and says, you know, uh, what if I was wrong? And... I, it's just it's something that tells me about how good of an actor once again he is that he's able to bring all of those different layers and nuances to that character that those do shine through. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, and I think it's like I said before, it's definitely an instance in which they put themselves in a box, they wrote themselves out of it, but helping them do that was a huge dose of incredible acting chops by Randy Oglesby and I think the entire cast both the main cast and the supporting cast and really selling the rest of that arc uh, through its conclusion which actually is a great segue to my next point is the the turning point right the turning point to when Degra redeems himself and I think for me personally speaking I think when the overall arc got to be really compelling was with the episode stratagem and the episode was when they captured Degra, but they pretend that they're actually um, they had destroyed the, the weapon and that they were trying to create this fake snare for him to actually divulge the real location of, uh, of the actual super weapon, the real location where they're building it, and that they um, were trying to do this ruse. And I think, for me, that was a big turning point because it basically was a two... Um, a two-person episode between Scott Bakula and Randy, and they were carrying the entire episode between uh, the both of them. And I think it was a very bold maneuver for them to kind of entrust such a significant role to a supporting character, and for him to play off the lead character in Archer. I think worked really well, and for me, was the turning point not just for. Degra, the character, but it was a turning point for the entire Zindi arc. Because, in my opinion, from then on there, I think it was a sprint all the way to zero hour. Because that's when everything started falling into place in terms of the dominoes. So, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I think, just to, to take a detour to Captain Archer, my favorite character, uh, Scott Bakula did a tremendous job in that episode. Because you can see in that shuttlecraft so many instances of where he has such a hard time sitting there and listening to the things Degra is saying, especially in um, the one scene where Degra starts talking about the number of people that were killed and he wondered how many were children. And you can see how hard it is for Archer to sit there and not lunge at the guy and take him out, essentially. Uh, And so I think that was a great bit of acting by, by Scott Bakula. But, you know... to the both of them, they played off of each other so well. And it brought such a different understanding to the character that we haven't had really in Star Trek before, except for maybe 
with Gal Dukat. But even with him, he he became a little more one-dimensional by the end. And uh, with with Degra, you could really see in this episode that's when the character stepped into his own. Jeff? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed his character after this point. He became much more interesting once I started learning about him uh, more than just the few appearances he'd had before where most of what he was saying was he was complaining about the safety conditions for the workers that were building a weapon for him. Um, now we saw there was more to him than just that. It's he has a family and he's trying to protect his family from the threat that uh, uh, he perceives. And I can completely understand that. Uh, and I can see where he's coming from on that. And his specialty, his area of expertise is that he is really good at making weapons. And so that's his contribution to protecting the Zindi people. Um, so when he finds out later that there's evidence that says, well, maybe his motivation for doing what he's been doing is wrong. And he takes that in and he's honest enough with himself and with the evidence to accept it and say, maybe I've made a mistake and how can I make this good? Uh, how can I make this better? How can I uh, do good again? Uh, I think right. fundamentally, I think he was a good person. It's just the circumstances he found himself in led him to do things that otherwise weren't as good. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think for the listeners out there, you know, this is the episode where we learn a lot about Degra. We learned that he was a committed family man. He was very attached to his wife, Nara. He had two children named Peral and Jaina. At one point, his wife was pregnant with a third child. They're going to name her Trina. But three months into that pregnancy, his wife uh, contracted anaprolian fever and the child died. These are all these kind of humanizing aspects to the character. And that's a really good point, Jeff. And what you brought up, Tommy, makes a lot of sense too. Because if you think about it, you know, this is as... This is as close as you're going to get to, you know, having one of our soldiers or one of our um, service members sitting next to a terrorist or insurgent in this kind of this this bait and switch situation. And you're really seeing it from their perspective. And, you know, it's that type of animosity. It's that type of of of, of tension. And can you just imagine, like you guys said, it's barely sublimated on Archer's part, right? You know, having to sit through this. But in the process of doing this very agonizing uh, mission, this agonizing uh, exercise, you're learning a lot about the other character and what you brought up, Jeff, before about, you know, we fight an enemy, enemy sometimes, but sometimes we forget that the enemy also has a brother, you know, uh, a sister, a wife, a, uh, a husband, a father, a family, a mother, all those things, right? They have the same types of wants and needs as we do, they have different motivations, but you kind of see that. I think I think that's lost sometimes in other shows. Is you don't have that type of nuance. You don't have this type of clear focus on what is perceived to be the enemy. But I want to actually bring it back to I think an, uh, an earlier question that I asked was, do you think that? Assuming that the assumption was correct, assuming that what the sphere builders had told them was actually correct, that Earth was going to destroy um, Zindis or the Zindi later on in the future, if assuming that that tr fact was true, do you still think that Degra's 
albeit reluctant, decision to build this weapon to do that preemptive first strike against Earth, would it still be justified if the sphere builders were right? I would say no. It, it's I don't know. It's a tough question, and I don't I don't know if there is a a good answer to it because the problem is you're so often fighting with the leadership of the other side rather than the people and you know to to bring it into modern terms it's you know this has been talked about a ton but the idea of islamophobia where you know there's some people have a tendency to say that every uh, Muslim is a bad person where most Muslims just, you know, want to go about their day. Some Muslims are photographers, whatever. And so this idea of if the sphere builders were right and earth was going to, you know, come in and destroy, I still don't think it would be right for Degra to build a weapon and destroy all of humanity. I don't think that's the answer. I think a better answer at the least is to find a way to fight with the government that's coming after you, not just completely erase the other people. It's the same uh, methodology you see of people who just want to, you know, bomb the entire Middle East because you have problems with certain groups over there. And I think the character of Degra is smart enough to realize by the end that just completely destroying people is not the answer. My thought on this is that they're told that this is going to happen 400 years in the future, and that's a lot of time for things yeah. to happen. And that gives them plenty of time. They can go and make diplomatic approach to Earth and say, we want to be friends with you and make an, an a, attempt to become friends. So over the next 400 years, instead of building up an animosity that would lead to them blow, you know, having humans blow up their planet— have them build up a friendship over 400 years and then avoid it that way. I and mean, there's uh, that's 400 years is a lot of time to build up a, a better relationship with humanity. If you got a, a heads up that, uh, you know, things are going to go bad down the line. So this is the interesting yeah. thing too. you, cause you make up a good point about there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Essentially this, this is why this story is so great. Cause there's so many analogs to, to current events and you know, there, there are so many people who Degra, I think, is the kind of person who can be convinced. He's where Dolem is the person you see current day, uh, or the insectoids would be the, the people current day that just say, you know what, let's just take it out now. And the aquatics are the people who are like, well, we don't really know, so we're just going to kind of set this one out. And in the end, it's going to, that's going to hurt them more. And so. Going back to earlier with Degra being incredibly, I think, intellectually honest, he is willing to consider alternatives. And that's what makes him a fascinating character. He's not set on just one particular answer. And that's also goes for Captain Archer, too. Because Archer's mission was to go in and stop this Indy, and others like Reed uh, really just, I think, intended to, and Trip, of course, intended just to blow them away. But Archer was also smart enough to realize that that may not be the only way or the best way. And very much exactly. ju just, I think Archer is Degra and Degra is Archer in a lot of ways. He's much like Shinzon is Picard, but having gone through such a different life, 
I think that Degra is Archer, but has been through a series of events that Archer never had to deal with that led him to where he is now. And also various political pressures where he probably would not have initially said, okay, let's build this weapon. But he was in a system of government where they pressured him to do this. What was that line from that famous movie, uh, In Another Time, Another Place, I Could Have Called You Friend? Has anyone known that movie? That sounds really familiar. I can I'm, Google I mean, it. It could be an, an imprecise uh, recitation or memory of that quote, but something along those lines of like, you know, you know, two enemies recognizing at a certain point, like in another time, another place, we wouldn't be enemies at all. We would actually be friends, right? And it's one of those things where like, but obviously, you know, when they said that line in that movie, it was it was said in a much more pessimistic and kind of uh, forlorn way because they knew that they still had to be enemies. But obviously, in the case of Archer and Degra, they actually resolve uh, their issues. But I think that's a really good point that both of you guys bring up is do the ends justify the means, right? This is basically do the ends justify the means. The Zindi essentially took on a huge leap of faith by saying, by trusting the sphere builders and saying, yeah, the ends do justify the means. If if they tell us they're, that race is going to destroy us in you know, 500 years, then we're going to have to destroy them. It was very much an absolute decision. Although I think later on you do see that there is more dissent in the Zindi council between insectoids, reptilians, um, the arboreals and the primates and what have you and the aquatics, that there probably was more of a debate and that perhaps they won they reached that decision, that consensus by a very close three to two vote, much like a close Supreme Court decision. But in this case, the Supreme Court decision is to annihilate another race completely. But I think I think that raises a really interesting question is, do the ends justify the means? I, I agree with both of you is that they don't. They don't in this case. And I think in most cases, they don't. Um, uh, and this is a case where there was another way. There has to be another way. We have to find that other way. And that's and kind of the whole I, point of Star Trek is that, you know, there has to be another way. We need to find something other than violence to to solve our problems. Exactly. So that's actually a really great segue, Jeff. Into, before you before you continue, I just want to sorry. say yep. that your quote uh, was from The Balance of Terror, the first episode oh, from the original series oh, of the it? Romulan. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. It was when uh, the Romulan commander said to Captain Kirk, I regret that we meet in this way. You and I are one of a kind. In a different reality, I could have called you friend. Look at that. Look at the, the I knew the it was familiar. I couldn't, I couldn't place yeah. it either. <laughs> that is Star Trek. Right there, right there. And Yeah. Oh, man, what if they'd actually used that line, right, as a direct call back to TOS? Oh, that would be awesome. You know, and this, was, this leads me to say that I think some people have suggested this, but I do wonder why they went with this indie and why they didn't just go with the Romulan War in Season 3. And I know this is probably off-topic from Degra and everything, but it would have seemed like the perfect transition for of storytelling for the show you want to go over to the serialized war arc you know around this time you have the romulan war it would i i will always wonder why they never went that way maybe because they couldn't find the way for the romulans to just destroy the entire planet i don't know thoughts jeff um i think that uh they weren't ready to take on the romulans at this point yet because it's been established pretty well that the Romulan War doesn't end until 2161, which at this point was a good six or seven years away. So I, I think that they didn't want to do anything that would have been more than a year or two long. So they were probably going to save that for the last couple of seasons at most. Um, 
and then jump ahead in time as they were doing it. Um, but starting it in 2154 for, uh, for a war that wasn't going to end until 2161, I think that seemed a little bit too early. Yeah, that's a good point. But I, I, I definitely sympathize where you're coming from, Tommy, because I actually had the exact same thought. I was just like, when we look over the overall arc of Enterprise, you're just kind of like, so we know, you know, it's, you know, they're trying to shake things up. What could have been a greater um, and more epic shakeup than the Romulan War, or the lead up into the Romulan War, right? That would have brought in all the old fans that may have given up on the show, brought in new fans, add a new angle to it. And I, for the longest time, I actually had this conversation with Norm because Norm is a big defender of the Zindi arc. And I remember watching this for the first time, and I was like, the Zindi could have easily been the Romulans. This could have been it. This could have been the lead up into it. It makes no sense to introduce like an entire new race of that we've never heard before, and this the expanse and all that. So, you know, world building from from square one for an entire season. I think it was just like, oh, why did they do that? And I, so I totally sympathize with the idea that if they had used the Romulans before, it would have attracted a lot of like fans that were familiar with Star Trek before. With that said, I think um, what you bring up, Jeff, actually has a lot of merit, too, because, you know, reading and kind of watching the special features and kind of like getting all that feedback before, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of pushback about using the Romulans again. They weren't either ready to go there yet or they didn't want to like go back to. And I don't know why Star Trek had this the idea of like, oh, the Romulans again, they're always boring or, you know, we don't want to use the Romulans. They were they talked about using the Romulans in Star Trek three and search for Spock. They talked about using the Romulans in Star Trek Insurrection, but they never did. There was this like this hesitance to kind of like reflect back on anything that was previous in Trek. And I think that only changed in season four when Manny Cotto took over when he said, you know what, we are going to reference the heck out of the rest of the universe from here on out. And I think there was a lot more hesitance at like at the, maybe the studio level, just going back to kind of these villains that people were familiar with. But for a lot of people, that would have been fantastic. But I think, not to digress too much longer, but I think for me, I think over time I've gotten to really appreciate the Zindi and all their diversity and kind of what Degra and, and, and his his comrades brought to the table. So I think the next point I think is 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 the big question is his redemption, right? So from stratagem onward you have the gradual but progressive change in degra's attitude where he a starts to you see uh the barriers in his mind break down him coming to the realization that actually he's wrong and then from there get to a point where he's actively helping archer to the point where he blew up a reptilian ship he fired on one of his own people and that was a huge step. It's it's the ultimate Rubicon, right? And I think in, one could safely say he was a traitor to his people in that respect. It was in greater service to his people. But I think a lot of traitors would say that anyway, right? That they're actually doing this to save themselves, right? Or to save their actual people. But in this case, you know, it ended up being that way. But it was still very much a bold, very, you know, sensational step to take, right? So what do you guys think of the, this this turn right the turn that eventually brings it all the way to zero hour i think much like anakin killing a bunch of kids out of the blue i think this uh of course reference in star wars episode three um i think that this was a little bit too much of a jump and it struck me when i first saw the episode at least when i first saw it rewatching it for the first time um 
it's one thing to be convinced of an idea and then to be unconvinced and then to start to be reconvinced of another idea. And granted, maybe the stakes are di the, the higher stakes of, you know, possibly a species, uh, an extinction level event for your species moves along the process faster. Just in my own life, when I think about my own deconversion from Christianity and then eventually into atheism, that took, I mean, a good, I mean, it was, it was things, you know, where you've, you've had doubts your whole life, whatever, but the actual process was like six to 12 months. And it took me a long time before I was finally willing to say, okay, I'm an atheist now. Um, and so I think for Degra to go from being, of course, we know he had doubts, yada, yada, but to go from a point of being willing to blow up an entire planet and then to destroy an entire ship of his own people is a little bit too much of a jump. I think that could have been handled differently. I think maybe he could have disabled them because as we see, the ship was later, the wreckage was later found anyway, which, which proved Degra was guilty. Uh, you know, I, it just, it was too much of a jump for me. Jeff? Yeah, I, uh, um, I thought he kind of changed uh, his mind a little quickly from being on one side to the other, but that's also kind of a, a nature of the way that the story was being told and the speed at which things were moving on the show. Um, I think if they had had a little more time to stretch out the arc, like over a year or you know an ex an extra year, say, that they could develop the storyline then, you know, might have been a little more organic, but they kind of had to wrap things up in, you know, six episodes. And that wasn't really a whole lot of time for this character to make a complete 180 like that as realistically as otherwise would have. Um, but well, You know, they could have just destroyed the warp engines on the yeah, ship. You yeah, know, and, and that, that would have worked a lot better. They could have uh, disabled the ship and... Uh, but yeah, going so far as to destroy the vessel completely, it it seemed a little too much. And as I said, I think it's the same thing with Anakin in Star Wars, where you know you get the the character arc that's going on, where he's changing, and he kind of falls into it. But then to go to this heinous act of killing children, all the kids, the Jedi, you know, uh, children that he kills, you know, that's a that's a huge leap for anyone. Mm -hmm. Especially when you consider he's doing it for the love of his wife. Like, I don't think anybody, like, sane person would do that. Same with Degra. Not to get into a Star Wars tangent. Oh, man. I would love to get into a Star Wars tangent. But, yes, I think I totally agree with both of you. It's like, yeah, Anakin killing younglings to protect Padme, right, just kind of doesn't commute, commute, uh, compute with me. And I think you're exactly right here. It is a bit of a shift. And the shift obviously has to happen to serve the story. It has to serve the narrative. They only got six episodes left. They got to wrap this thing up, right? Which again goes back to the idea of writing yourselves in that box and you got to get out of that box somehow, right? And there, there, there's only so much you can do. There's so much you can do to kind of paper over the fact that you're doing that. And I think it's really evident here. I think it's one of those really interesting what-ifs because I think Degra is enough of a substantial and compelling enough character where if they'd actually plan this out much more thoroughly as opposed to just kind of coming up with a premise and then rolling with it, they could have actually had an episode or a couple, a handful of episodes focused completely on Degra, that they were that 
um, that they trusted the story and they trusted the character and the actor enough to say, you know what, we need to learn a lot more about his backstory, not just in exposition and in dialogue and explained to Archer, but when you see the flashback, you see him living his life with his family. Then you see him interacting with the other Zindi. You see their relationship with the Guardians and the Sphere Builders and how they revere them and how he, even back then, maybe had doubts, but he still believed in it. And so by creating that, it builds a lot more later on for you to subvert that, to change that, and to and to potentially build off of that, right? Maybe have a couple episodes where he has to come to grips with perhaps turning weapons against his own people, but he draws that line about killing them. He's like, I'm not going to kill them, but I'm going to do what I can to stop them because it's for their own good and have a couple of episodes to really see that play out as opposed to just like, okay, well, let's just, you know, switch. I don't, don't want to say switch sides, but just kind of like it was done in a way that was just, it's moving at a very breakneck speed. So I don't think you necessarily need uh, a ton of episodes to, to do that. If you do it well, because I think oftentimes the shows with shorter seasons tend to be better. When you think about the last season mm -hmm. of 24, for anyone who saw it, I think was arguably one of the best seasons of the entire show. And it was a 13 episode season. And, it's and I think when you contain it to say, OK, we have 13 episodes for this, it challenges you to plot out the story in the most uh, uh, efficient way possible. But then the thing is, on that show, 24, they plotted out their story. And as we've mentioned, this wasn't done with Enterprise. And I think this is the problem you, you get. Because, I mean, realistically, 23 episodes is more than enough to develop that kind of arc for a character. And if it doesn't hit all the right notes, I think that just comes from it not being written as well as it could. That's a good point. I think I think you could make a definite argument about either way of... of you could still tell the same type of story in a focused way, but also at the same time tell it in a more comprehensive way or more kind of a, a character focus too. I think you definitely make an argument for both. From a from a just want to say from a writing standpoint as a character arc, my favorite character arc in any TV show or movie is Harvey Dent's in The Dark Knight. Second time I've referenced The Dark Knight today, but it it's so expertly written because you have two and a half hours. And you go from a guy who starts out as basically the white knight. He is the best good guy you can have. And by the end, he's killing people and he's ready to kill children. And it was done much more... Uh, it was done much better than the Anakin Skywalker arc. And I think it was handled better than the Degra arc in terms of that transition. They, they had two and a half hours. They made the best use of it possible. And that's I think that is the way you have to handle that kind of character, whether he's going from good guy to bad guy or bad guy to good guy. That's a good point. Yeah, this was also uh, um, very common of uh, Star Trek, uh, uh, the way it was written at the time. I mean, they would have a cliffhanger and have no idea how they were going to resolve it. Uh, yeah, right, I exactly. Mean, case in point with the uh, the end of uh, this season, uh, they uh, they left it with uh, right. uh, space Nazis in 1944 and no way how they were going to resolve that at all. And Picard getting assimilated, of course. Mm -hmm. They they had no idea how they were going to conclude that. But I don't think it's just a symptom of Star Trek. This is just the way shows were written. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. even so, like, it's not that long ago, but even 2003, that's just, there generally was not much 
serialization on TV at the time. Yeah, that's that's just a very recent thing, uh, just within yeah. the last decade. Yeah, I think really with Battlestar, right? Um, yeah, that's that, true. That was really the start of it. That and Babylon 5 were really the start of it. Oh, uh, that's true. In Babylon 5, that was mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah, Early that was uh, started up in 93, 94, and it was way ahead of its time in terms yeah. of that kind of storytelling. Also, as a shout-out to Norm, that's like Norm's yeah. favorite non-Trek show. It's it's ridiculous how much of a <laughs> huge Babylon 5 fan he is. Um, but yes, I'm actually watching Babylon 5 now for the first time in its entirety, and it's really good, even though... Um, obviously it's, it's dated, but I think for it really was ahead of its time in terms of the type of storytelling it was doing. Uh, but not to go on that tangent, but, um, so the next question I want to ask actually, as we begin to wrap up is, was Degra's death necessary? Like, did he have to die? And what if he didn't die? Does, does his story necessitate him dying as atonement or does, is there, is there a way for him to survive? and still carry on that same significance. It felt a little like Trip's death. It didn't, it, it definitely had more meaning, but it didn't feel completely necessary. And in some ways, it felt kind of like when you have a main character who either uh, gets pregnant or gets someone else pregnant, and they either kill off the baby or kill off the person that got pregnant before, you know, before they can have the kid. Because they have to get back to the status quo. And uh, it's it's always the the best solution to any problem. Well, you don't really need, want a new regular character, so kill him off. And I think a lot of that was, where would they have gone with Degra's character in the following season? I don't think they necessarily wanted to use him anymore. And a death was probably the best way to handle it. And it makes Dolom even more of a villain, but I don't think we needed him to be more of a villain. It was pretty clear that he was already a pretty terrible person. And so it just, I don't know that it necessarily served the story that well. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't really see uh, the need to kill him off. Um, they had already established that uh, Dolom was pretty bad when they were talking about the story about how he had uh, killed his daughter's deformed uh, baby, and uh, that yeah. set him up as being pretty bad. I mean, that's, that's really all you need to know is that this guy will kill babies, and uh, um, you don't really need to show him killing off another character just to show that he's a bad guy. Um and I, I think he he didn't need to be killed off. I mean, he could have uh, faded off into obscurity, you know, even without killing him. Um, just at the end of the storyline, the Zindi go off and do their thing, and he goes to rejoin his people, and that's the last we ever hear of him. Or they could bring him back later, and maybe he is serving as some kind of an ambassador or liaison between humans and the Zindi because he's established a relationship with Archer. And we only have, you know, we can only see him like once or twice after that. We don't have to see him all the time. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going to go with that, actually, because I also agree with both of you. It's like, I did not need to see Degra die. I th with that said, the scene as acted, what I think was terrific. I think oh, yeah. the interplay yeah. between, it was, it was, it was so visceral. And it was, and and you kind of saw it coming, but still, it was kind of a, a shock as well. I think between the two actors, it was terrific. So the scene itself, I think, was is executed superbly. 
whether it was necessary, I agree with you. I don't think it was because we don't need him to die just to put an exclamation point on the fact that Dolan is a villain. And I think there was a space, like you said, Jeff, there was a space for Degrit to survive because going forward, we know that, you know, in later iterations of Star Trek, the Zinni are never mentioned ever again. We never, we kind of have to fill in the gaps ourselves as to where the Zindi fit into the rest of the Alpha Quadrant. But if they were going to actually have additional seasons, if they were planning this out, they could have they could have made Degra into that type of, he's that bridge, like you said, Jeff. He's that envoy to say, you know what? Perhaps it is time for us to do some soul searching, uh, us as a race. Maybe we don't need to look to others anymore like the Sphere Builders. And they're going to look inward and we have to work on ourselves and rebuilding our civilization. Let's withdraw from galactic affairs, which would explain why we don't hear about them ever again, why they're not a founding member of the Federation. They just kind of withdrew because they're nomads, right? They don't have a planet. They just kind of withdrew amongst themselves. And it could have been that nice, you know, t- tying off that loose end of saying, you know, Degra is going to be there. I think it'd been really nice in later seasons if we got it for Degra and Archer to actually become really good friends, to actually really have a relationship. I think that'd been terrific. And I think that would have been that's so Star Trek, right? You know, there has to be a better way. And the better way is what we're doing right now, this friendship that we have, this relationship that we have. So I definitely agree that it it wasn't necessary, but what we got, I think, was just terrific in terms of if they're going to have to do it, I think that was the best way to do it. I just want to say on a not necessary front that I think the only time you should kill off a character is when it creates either if it's the end of a show when it would create the possibility of new storylines or when it will create the new storylines for further movies or seasons. And because one thing I think I've realized lately with character deaths in TV and movies is that they're really only impactful when you can empathize with the characters who are affected by the death. And this isn't really the case with Degra. We don't have we don't have his children or his wife to empathize with. And so if there were scenes, you know, where where his kids were were saddened by this, were crying over his dead body, what have you, as a son, I could empathize with losing my father, and that would create a much stronger emotional tie to to that story. And then also in future seasons, it could create new storylines of what is the fallout of Degra's death? And it's very much the same with Trip's death. I love Trip as a character, but we don't really see, because of where and when it happens, we don't really see the emotional fallout of that. We have a couple of sad-ish scenes, but uh, nothing really that, that strong about it. And so I just don't think it was necessary. It just felt like a death to have a death. There was no emotional impact. There was no possible future storyline to to for to, to give cause to that death and i think that's the important thing to writing a major character death and unfortunately while the scene was great it missed the mark with degra yeah i agree that's a good point so i think uh it's time to do our final thoughts so i think as you're doing our final thoughts on the character of degra i think just i want you guys to keep in mind um his overall significance to the arc and overall significance to the series. If he could kind of rank up, does he rank up to the other storylines in enterprise and other characters 
in Enterprise, other supporting characters like Shran, perhaps, you know, how does he rank up against that kind of that that stable of recurring characters and what he meant to the series as well as as the season itself? So, Tommy, you want to start off? There's so many different approaches you can take with Degra. He was and you know, one of the first things I thought of when you t- when you mentioned that he was in 10 episodes, he's a lot like Garrick from Deep Space Nine in that it feels like. Of course, I know he wasn't in the first two seasons, but it really feels like he was there for much more than that. And, you know, with Garrick, it was like 20 episodes or something like that out of the entire run of Deep Space Nine. And it feels like he was there for every episode. That is because the characters were that interesting and that well written and that well played. And so while there, of course, as we've mentioned, there were some flaws with the storytelling of Degra overall even more so than Shran in some ways, I think it felt like he was there more. And I think, honestly, he was a bigger player than Shran because he was so integral to the success of the Enterprise's mission in The Expanse, whereas Shran just kind of, you know, he he weaved in and out throughout the show for various missions. And so I would have liked to see more of Degra in season four their continuing relations with the Zindi would have been really interesting. I think there was, there was so much done with that character and there was still a lot of room to grow and it's too bad that they didn't get the chance to do that. Yeah, I agree. Um, his, uh, his character, uh, didn't, it, it seemed like he was around for a lot more than just 10 episodes in that season. I mean, it looking back, I could have sworn that he was in almost every single one of them, uh, and not just less than half. Um, and I think the, uh, the, the arc was, you know, it, the overall arc of the, the story with the Zindi was very much what Star Trek was about. Like I was saying earlier, it's finding another way of solving the problem and not just going in and blowing everything up. Um, you know, that was the initial, uh, view that everyone had. It's like, we've been attacked, we've got to go back and find them and blow them up and, when the final uh, conflict was resolved by finding out why they came and attacked and getting everyone to sit down and realize, oh, well, we're all mistaken and we're all being deceived and this is who the real enemy is or this is what we really uh, need to be worried about. And I, I think that's that's really important to what Star Trek is about is that there's other ways to resolve our problems and uh, uh, that really uh, um, uh, resonated with me for the season so arc as a whole, especially once I was able to sit down and see the whole thing start to finish uh, in a relatively short period of time um, when I got the DVD sets. Um, and now I've got the, uh, the Blu-ray sets as well, and some of the behind-the-scenes interviews, like you were mentioning earlier in the show, uh, adds so much more to it with the uh, the interviews that they had with the uh, the actors and the producers and the writers and uh, I, I just I couldn't agree more about having uh, Degra come back for some time in the future he could have brought so much more to the show in the fourth season and I think that was a real missed opportunity totally I, I agree with both of you and it's one of those things where you know, hindsight really is 2020 and obviously the demands of writing a show and, you know, even back in season three, they weren't sure they were going to get a season three, 
right? Let alone season four, right? They were they were on the cusp. So that's right. What you mentioned, Jeff, you know, watching those special features really provides such needed perspective because, you know, hearing Brandon Braga say, you know, we didn't know season three was going to work. This was the Hail Mary of all Hail Marys, right? Let's just do one arc, new villain, just blow it open, right? And to their credit, they were able to, you know, put themselves in this box. I've used this analogy so many times now, but they're able to write themselves out of it pretty successfully. But I think what you guys mentioned is also true, is that there are points where you can tell that it could have been better in these aspects. And with Degra, you know, that's very true in terms of he provided that linchpin. He was he was the turning point for me personally speaking, for when I actually really liked the Zindi arc. From stratagem onward, I think is just some some very tight storytelling. I think as tightly structured as the as the best of Star Trek, and it's not perfect, but I think it works a lot better than people give it credit for, and it certainly worked a lot better than I gave it credit for initially. And a lot of it has to do with you mentioned Jeff and Tommy, in terms of this is what Star Trek is supposed to be about, right? The critics would have been right if the storyline would have just been. We're going to retaliate and we're going to just blow them out of the uh, out of the stars. We're going to blow them out of the water and that's it. And that's how humanity is, you know, establishes itself. That would have been very un-Star Trek to me. And initially in those initial episodes, it is very dark. But at the same time, that's what's relatable about it because it's very much something that we can relate to. That they just want revenge, right? It's it, It's not about justice. And I think they're pretty clear about that. Archer's like, you know, yeah, justice, but this is pr- pretty much revenge. We want vengeance. To, for them to get to a point where it's not about vengeance or revenge, but it's about reconciliation. Because that's what it is. They have to reconcile because it's not going to work. Revenge is not going to work. And that's Star Trek at its core. And like you mentioned, Tommy, that's Balance of Terror. That's 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 Star Trek when it first existed. When it was first launched, they had that same thing of we're actually a lot more similar than we um, pretend to be otherwise. We're much more similar Everyone is, and there's got to be a way. There has to be a better way. And that's where Degra comes in, because without Degra, none of that works. This is just a throwaway special effects bonanza, basically. It's just a a special special effects-driven revenge plot. But ultimately, it doesn't become that, and to their credit, it's because of Degra. It's because of Randy Oglesby being so terrific. And I think... It definitely serves uh, serves Star Trek well in the overall theme that it portrays at the very end. Although, as both of you mentioned, they could have extended that theme through Degra a lot more uh, substantially if they wanted to really go that far. But I think you could te- definitely see by the end of season three, they're just like, we want to end this completely. No, like We're not going to mention the Zindi ever again. It's just going to be completely almost this bottle season, right? Like they'll mention it here and there, but they really just wanted to be over with it. And I think it could have been a lot better, but I feel like that's the mantra of enterprise, right? It could have been a lot better if they had more time or they had the opportunity to do so. So, um, I had a really great discussion tonight, guys. I think, you know, I went into this knowing we're going to have a really good, uh, really good discussion, but this has been a great discussion. It has a lot of real world analogs and a lot of just, great um material and issues that we talked about tonight so i'm really glad you guys uh joined me here so say we all oh sorry wrong franchise agreed i'm gonna i'm gonna eject you out of the airlock for that <laughs> statement Tommy. well that's what adama did i think probably more than once 
I know, right? I mean, that's true. That's true. No uh, but that's for a whole other yeah. podcast. That's for other podcasts. But it's been a lot of fun talking about Degra. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. You know, watching it live to three months after the series ends to watch the Mirror Universe episodes. You're like, you're but like, uh, whoa, man, I heard season three got dark, but this is crazy. <laughs> it got darkly. Anyway. Oh. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. And so they cannot impart to him the knowledge that he needs in order to raise his son. And Worf doesn't want to raise a human son. Like you said earlier, he didn't get the son that he wanted. He wants to raise a Klingon son. The ready room. We knew that Spock was popular, and we knew that Dad had some fans, but we were not prepared for what we saw happening in the social media, in the print media. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the New York Times reported that they got more hits on Dad's obituary than any other person personality in the history of the paper to the journey you're not a member of our race or a member of our culture so we're gonna say no hmm that's kind of boring and yet i don't know what else to do oh screw you <laughs> sorry buddy warp five i remember watching broken bow when enterprise first debut when i was in high school and i remember revisiting it now in full and i had forgotten the fact that future guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Suleban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. It's all of these top-notch filmmakers, like people like Walter Murch, who literally wrote the book on editing. He, like those guys all teaming up to make a big action kids movie, I think is really cool. The 602 Club. I think he's very much recreating that THX feel and... You may di- you may disagree with it. You may not think it's you know it's great, but it's on purpose. He, he wants that world to be that way. Let me just say, conceptually, I agree with that. In terms of execution, that's where I think he failed. Literary tricks. It's amazing to me as I reread these stories how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> you know the the actual series. Axenar. The official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones. Yes, definitely. Of course bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us everywhere you can get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or any of the Trek FM network shows, please leave us a five-star rating and a review, which will help us greatly increase our visibility for new listeners. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, 
tune in Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS feed as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seat on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. And you find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And thank you always to our associate producer for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. Thank you for supporting our network through patreon.com. And I'd like to mention that Mike Morrison is also an associate producer for Warp 5. He's actually been a producer quite some time, but we've, I think, through the transition from Chris to, to Norm and I, I think we've kind of something fell through the, uh, the cracks and we didn't acknowledge Mike for his generous support. Uh, of our show as associate producer. So I want to rectify that now. So thank you, Mike, for being an associate producer alongside Floyd and helping us bring Warp 5 to our listeners every week. So if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM, and of course, you can find us in the Babel Conference, which is our dedicated Facebook listeners group where we talk all things Trek, but also non-Trek as well. And it's just a great place for just funny, intelligent, in-depth conversation that's always respectful. So I think that's something you don't always find on the Internet. So it, I really appreciate that space um, for, for fans and listeners to just connect. Jeff, if people want to find you on the interwebs, What's the best way to do that? Well, I'm always on uh, the Babel Conference on uh, Facebook. I post uh, almost daily, if not more than daily. <laughs> um, I, I'm uh, on uh, Twitter as well, at Harlander. Um, I post there occasionally. <laughs> um, I have, uh, as I've mentioned before, I have uh, my Trekopedia website, uh, trekopedia.com, where I'm kind of compiling uh, everything together uh, from all the different uh, licensed Star Trek shows, the uh, the shows, the comics, the novels, the games, everything, and trying to compiling it into, a, like you said, a, a grand unified theory of uh, Trek. Um, and I've also uh, got my comic book, uh, The Protectorate, on bandwidthcomics.com or on Facebook. Uh, just search for bandwidth comics. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. And uh, you can find them, like you said, you're always on the Babel Conference. And I love <laughs> it. So you can always chat them up there. And Tommy? Uh, my main thing is Star Trek Horizon, the Enterprise fan film, of which I am the, uh, the, the guy behind. Uh, and so the main place I post is on the Horizon Facebook page. That's always me that posts. And, uh, you know, if you want to get in touch, just shoot me a message there or find the Horizon website. And so the Facebook page is facebook.com slash sthorizon. Or you can go to the website, startrekhorizon.com. And, uh, you know, it's always a great place to be if you want to find out more about the movie or stay up to date or just shoot me a message. So can we start calling your movie the start of the craft verse? So everything <laughs> is going to be its own unified universe of craft trek? Yes, there's there's the JJ verse, and then there's the craft verse, uh, and so obviously mine is the best out of all of them, of course. So uh, 
Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I just basically it's it's the multiverse theory, right? Everything you know, there's so many universes in Trek, right? Everything has an alternate timeline, so it works, right? And that's I mean, well but, established in canon. Yeah, exactly. But we do have to be clear that in the multiverse, the craft verse is the verse. Ooh, there you so, go. So just saying. And then you can have an epic crossover where the battle of the verses for supremacy. Yeah, and then maybe we'll do a uh, franchise crossover and go to the Underverse. Well, thanks for coming on, Tommy. You're always uh, a pleasure to have on the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And yeah, and my contact information is at Will underscore Wings, N-G-U-Y-E-N. You can tweet me anytime. I'm also the content manager for Trek FM, so if you have any ideas on what the network should talk about or things uh, we've talked about in the past, just shoot me a line as well. Obviously, I'm the co-host for Warp 5, the Enterprise podcast. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference talking all things Trek and non-Trek as well. But actually, before I forget, we need to mention our sponsors. First one is Audible. So before we like to go, um, we like to just kind of give a, a shout out to audible.com. It's a great way for you to read all the books you always wanted to, but never thought you'd have time for. So as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make it happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. So as I wrap up the show, I just want to apologize to listeners. I'm actually coming down with a cold, so I'm actually, I apologize if my voice sounds a little bit different, but I think it was well worth coming on tonight because I think we had a terrific discussion on Degra and so many, you know, real world issues and the Zindi arc. It was just a fantastic discussion with Tommy and Jeff tonight. So I'm really glad to be a part of it. So thanks for listening, everyone. And join us again next time here in the conference room slash decon chamber for another episode of Warp 5.